after that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, take us into that temple with Isaiah. Help us to hear what you said to him. And help us to understand that what you were saying to Isaiah, you meant for us to hear. So in these few moments, as we examine your scripture as we examine our own hearts may we hear your voice speak to us so speak to us Lord your servants are listening amen you know the road of life can be confusing and I and I have found in my own life that when I am most confused that's when I know where I'm supposed to go Uh, I almost deliberately cloud my vision of the road because I don't want to (laughs) go where I know I need to go. And so what I do is I start bringing in all these other options, and I get confused, and then I can blame it on the confusion. You see, often um, we are sent where we do not want to go. And that's why we find the road confusing. I want to tell you a few stories. One uh, goes back to my days at William & Mary. I was a resident advisor, a dorm mother, if you will, for three of the the, uh, four years that I was there. And I was known as what, I'll I'll clean it up a little bit, I was a GDI, a, a gosh darn independent and you can fill in the blanks yourself. Um, in other words, I, I was not a fan of the Greek system, the fraternities and the sororities. And, and I realize we got some Greeks among us. So bear me out. Wait until I finish the story. Uh, but I always felt like the Greek system was based on, you know, uh, exclusivity, you know, um, my friends could actually blackball, blackball someone so they couldn't be a part of, of our 
of our clan. And, and I just felt like that's not what I was about. Well, by the time I was a senior, I was a resident advisor in a, in a uh, dorm that was filled with people with my own sensibility. And so we created, as a dorm, a, a mock fraternity. Uh, we called it Tapakega Beer. <laughs> we, even, we even built a great big out of, out of plywood up on... <laughs> Tapakega Beer. And you can understand why. This was meant as a mock fraternity. We, we actually had rules about how you could join. You had to go to the fourth floor uh, to sign up. Well, there was no fourth floor on this uh, dorm. But we had these great big, uh, you know, Greek letters and a keg of beer kind of to represent the, our, our call letters, if you will. Well, when I graduated from William & Mary... Uh, I went to Duke University, sorry, but uh, to the seminary there. And because of my experience as a resident advisor there, I got a job for the four years that I was at Duke, also being kind of a dorm mother, a resident advisor. Uh, I, had to, I needed to work my way through school. That was a great way to do that. Well, the very first dorm that I was placed in was a fraternity. It was God's way of saying, you know, don't call any of my children unclean, as, as uh, God was saying to uh, Peter. Um, and I have learned in my life, to if I have problems with other people, I don't tell God, <laughs> because God will send me to them uh, every time. Um, you know, I didn't want to go to a fraternity, but some of my best friends that I, that I uh, came to know at Duke, came out of that, out of that first, first dorm. Well, um, a little later when I graduated from there and went to my first church, uh, where I met Cheryl, my wife, um, I went there with kind of a feeling about the Masons. Do we have any Masonic, Masonic people here? Yeah. Okay. Bear with me till I finish. Okay. <laughs> but I had a similar feeling about the Masonic ritual and uh, Masons kind of, well, they're kind of exclusive, kind of secret, you know. And so I had my own biases about this uh, particular organization. One of the members of my church was very active in the Knights Templar, which is a, which is a kind of a subset of uh, the Masonic order. And he came to me one day and he said, you know, would you mind if I submitted your name um, to, to be selected as one of the young pastors that the Knights Templar would send to the Holy Land. I said, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't think there was any chance that I would be selected among, this was a nationwide search. Well, I was, and I was selected to represent Virginia, and I was part of a group of about 20, 20 young pastors from across the country, and we spent 14 days in the Holy Land, which were some of the most rewarding, uh, purposeful days I've spent in my life. And it, it absolutely affected my preaching, my, my study, my understanding of the scriptures, and my faith. It was a wonderful experience. 
So when I came back, guess what I had to do for the next decade of my life? I traveled around Virginia because I was being invited to tell the Knights Templar about my trip to the Holy Land that they had funded. It was God's way of sticking me in the eye. And it was wonderful. And I got to know some of the most wonderful people uh, who were Masons and Knights Templar. We often are sent where we don't want to go. And that was certainly the case in both of these instances for me. Sometimes we don't want to go there because we feel inadequate. And, that, and that's what uh, happened to me when, I, when I, was, I had served for eight years in the church where I was. And I, got a, I, I had no intention of leaving at that point. I was, comf- I was happy where I was, and the people seemed to be okay with me. And, but I got a call one night from a district superintendent who said, um, Al, I'd like you to consider coming to Charlottesville to a church called Hinton Avenue United Methodist Church. I said, oh, okay. I hadn't really planned to move this year. Let, let me talk to my wife, and I'll get back with you. Well, that was really, I was just trying to put him off for a little bit because I wanted to find out about Hinton Avenue. I didn't know anything, Larry, about Hinton Avenue. And back in those days, you didn't do what I did. (laughs) My wife and I, we drove down to Charlottesville and drove around Hinton Avenue and did our little research on, on this church. Went back to Northern Virginia where I was serving, and, uh, and then I called a, a colleague of mine that I'd known for many years who had been in the ministry a lot longer than I, and, and I said, what do you know about Hinton Avenue? Tell me about it. He said, I don't want you to even think another moment about Hinton Avenue. I have something else I want you to do. I said, what, what's that? I said, he said, well, the editor of the Virginia Advocate is, is going to be leaving, and you need to apply for that job. And I said, come on. I, was young. I had dark hair then. I was a young guy. Uh, I was an English major, but I wasn't a, a journalism major. I said, you know, they're, they're not even going to think about me. I don't even ha- stand. He said, you apply. I want you to promise me you're going to apply tonight. I want you to tell me that. I said, all right. And so I did, and I was hired. And I was there for 15 years as uh, director of communications for the conference and editor of the advocate. I really went there feeling like, boy, I'm a duck out of water. Who am I to think that I can uh, be the editor of the conference newspaper and, and be a director of communication? Those 15 years opened my my life to the connectional church to the larger church. I was elected to a couple of general conferences. I, I traveled to Africa. I, I taught uh, a class at the Africa University. It, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. But boy, did I feel inadequate to the task. When it became clear to me that this was not where I was going to be the rest of my life, I really felt like I was called to be a pastor. And so I told the bishop, I, 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 need, I need, as much as I love what I'm doing, I need to go back to becoming a pastor again. And so I was appointed to a church with 2,000 members, a staff of almost a dozen. I, I was scared to death. I felt inadequate to that task. It had been 15 years since I'd been a pastor of a church. Oh, I'd done plenty of preaching and other kinds of things in local churches, been all over the conference, but I had not been the pastor of a church. And, and so I was shaking in my boots. 
but that's precisely where God sent me. So, so sometimes we, we, we don't want to go where we're sent because we don't feel like we're, we're up, to the, up to the task. And now, now I'm getting ready to move into an unknown place called retirement. You know, and, and when I felt inadequate, I could look over the hill and I could see what it was. And I was saying, boy, that's, I don't know that I can do that. But now I, I look, I can see the top of the hill, but I can't see over it. I don't know what's on the other side. And so it, it's a little unnerving for me because I don't know what I'm going to find when I finally crest the hill. And so sometimes, you see, we, we're reluctant to, to, to go where we're sent because of the unknown. Well, the road of life can be scary and exciting. It can be difficult and it can be wonderful all at the same time. That's what I've experienced in my own life. We just might be reluctant to go where we're sent because it can seem kind of cloudy to us. It can seem confusing to us. So let's think about this question. Why are we reluctant to go where we're sent? Number one, from my own experience, I've experienced, we have a bias against those to whom we are sent. That's why we're reluctant to go. We, we don't like who God is sending us to, so we don't want to go there like Jonah. Jonah, remember, he was sent to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the, the hated enemy of the Jews. And that is precisely where God was sending Jonah. And so Jonah took the first boat going in the opposite direction to Tarshish because he, he had a bias against the very people that God was sending him to. So sometimes that's why we're reluctant to go where we're sent because we have that kind of bias. You know, too many churches have to close their doors and go out of existence because they have a bias against the very people who live on their doorstep, the people who live just a block or two from their church. And they, they never can see them as their brothers and sisters, and they end up dying on the vine, and they close their doors. Sometimes we as individuals, we close our hearts to other people because we have a bias against them. Another reason that uh, we're reluctant to go where we're sent is that we do not believe we are adequate to the task. Moses uh, was told by God to go to Pharaoh, and Moses didn't feel like he was up to it. He, he started stuttering and saying, I, I, I can't talk. I'm, I, I'm slow of speech. How, how can you send me? He, he had other reasons that he gave to God that he should not go. He felt inadequate to the task, but that's precisely why God sent Moses to Pharaoh because God knew that Moses would have to rely on him. God always chooses people the world thinks are inadequate to the task. Remember little David, the shepherd boy with nothing but a slingshot? He was chosen by God to slay, slay the, the giant Goliath. When Jesus needed a band of followers that would eventually carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, he started with 12 just very common men, most of them fishermen. And when God wanted to bring the Savior into the world, God chose a, a young maiden 
who was only betrothed, wasn't even married to a poor carpenter to raise the Savior of the world. You see, God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. People like Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and George Washington, Dwight D. Eisenhower, you can go on and on with a list of, of Americans who felt inadequate, and yet they made all the difference in the history of our nation. Sometimes we're reluctant to go where we're sent because we are afraid of the unknown, as I am with retirement. Abraham and Sarah in the Bible were told to leave everything behind, even their relatives. And they were advanced in years. They had a comfortable living. They were wealthy. They had lots of relatives. They had every good reason to just sit back and put their feet up and just relax for the rest of their lives. But that's when God called them and wanted to send them to a place that they didn't even know. They didn't know where they were going. All they knew is they needed to follow God. When was the last time you struck out into the unknown, not knowing what would lay ahead for you? You know, First United Methodist Church a number of years ago decided to stay in the downtown and to be a downtown church. I dare say that those who made that decision back then didn't know there would be an August 12th experience. They didn't know how the community would change and what would be needed to be a church in this area. There was a whole lot of unknown for the people who made that decision. But that's precisely what God was calling this church to do. But finally, I think perhaps the most important reason we're reluctant to go where we're sent is because we do not adequately see the one who sends us. You see, Saul thought he knew. Saul thought, the the Saul that eventually would become the Apostle Paul, Saul thought that he was following the commands of God, but he didn't see God. He saw himself. He saw his own pride. He saw his own self-righteousness. That's what he saw, and that's what was leading him to Damascus, where he was going to continue his persecution of the followers of the way, the early Christians. But it was on that road that God struck him down on the ground and blinded him. And only when his eyes were shut was he able to see Jesus, was he able to see what his real task was going to be. Saul, who would become Paul, would now be sent out into the world to to call on Gentiles to become followers of Jesus. Now, it might look like the bishop does the appointing. It might look like the bishop has appointed Phil and myself to this church. It may look like your employer has sent you to the particular job or task that you have been assigned. You might even find that you feel like you were sent here because of grandchildren that you are here to take care of. But if you see that God has played a part in this, if you see that it is God who has sent you here, and you are where you are because God sent you, it will change your life. It will change everything that you do and say with where you are. When you begin to see God at work in your sending, 
you begin to see the real purpose in your life. Isaiah's prophetic career began when he saw the Lord. Remember what Carolyn read for us about his vision in the temple. In in that vision, he writes about it. He says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Let me say that again. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That's when he saw the Lord. Did he not see him before? Did he not see the Lord before? What was it about that day, that time, in that year that King Uzziah died? You see, Uzziah was Isaiah's hero. Uzziah ruled for 52 years. He began at the age of 16. Isaiah didn't know any other king at that point in his life other than Uzziah. And it was Uzziah who brought wealth to the kingdom, who brought prosperity to the kingdom. For 52 years, he he helped fortify the countryside. He re-equipped the army. He really made the nation something that everyone could be proud of. And that's precisely why the people were starting to kind of fall away from God and almost forget that God had anything to do with their, with their prosperity. In fact, his, his ego had reached a point that he actually went into the temple and he started ma- making sacrifices, or, or I should say he started the, uh, burning the incense in the temple, taking over the role of the priest as if the priests were no longer necessary. And so according to Isaiah, God struck Uzziah with, with leprosy and he eventually died of, of the disease. You see, Isaiah's king was dead. And that's when Isaiah began to see the Lord. It's when his king died that he was able to see God. I'd like to read a a portion from James Hastings' The Making of a Missionary that speaks to this, this happening. The prophet Isaiah had lost a hero and found his Lord. God puts out our little light that we may see him the better. When you are looking out of the window at night, gazing toward the sky, you will see the stars more clearly if you put out your gaslight. That is what God has to do for us. God has to put out the secondary lights in order that we may see the eternal light. Uzziah has to die in order that we may see it is God who lives. God has continually to take away our little kings, the weak repositories of our trust, in order to show that we have given a false emphasis to life. He takes away that which we regarded as the keystone in order to reveal to us the real binding force in life. I have found him come to a nation and take away the king of commercial prosperity, Because when commercial prosperity reigns, men are too prone to forget the Lord. It is not in the seven seven fat years that we pray. It is in the seven years of famine, when the weed is blasted with the east wind. It is then that men see the Lord and pray. You see, King Uzziah had to die 
in order for Isaiah to see his maker. Sometimes we cannot see God. We cannot see what God wants us to see until what covers God is stripped away. Reading from John Henry Jewett's sermon, I know a little cottage which is surrounded by great and stately trees, clothed with dense and massy foliage. In the summer days and through all the sunny season, it just nestles in this circle of green and has no vision of the world beyond. But the winter comes so cold and keen. It brings its sharp knife of frost, cuts off the leaves until they fall trembling to the ground. There is nothing left but the bare framework on which summer hung her beauteous growths. Poor little cottage with the foliage all gone. But is there no compensation? Yes, yes. Standing in the cottage in the wintertime and looking out of the window, you can see a mansion which has come into view through the openings left by the fallen leaves. The winter brought the vision of the mansion. The winter brought the vision of the mansion. You see, sometimes the winter in our life must come. The leaves must fall. Our kings must die in order for us to see the one who sends us to share the gospel of Christ. So what is holding you back from where God is sending you? Is it, is it biases against your destination? Is that what's holding you back? Perhaps you're being held back by feelings of inadequacy or fear of the unknown. Perhaps at the heart of it all, you simply lack the vision not really knowing who it is that is sending you. In the temple, in the midst of Isaiah's grief and over the loss of his king and his own confusion about where God is leading him, God spoke to Isaiah in a vision. And God's question to the young prophet it's God's, is God's question to us. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah's answer should be ours as well. Here am I. Send me. Let us pray. Lord, forgive us for allowing the road to get too foggy with our own confusing, confusing insights. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking you cannot use us. Help us to confront our fears and our and our sense of inadequacy, and send us out in your name. We make our prayer in the name who, of the one who sends us all. Amen.